Well, we come back to our study in Daniel chapter 11 tonight, continuing on in verses 36 to 45. If you'd turn there in your copy of God's Word, Daniel chapter 11 and verses 36 to 45. And as we've already begun to look at these verses, we've seen elements of the end times revealed that are revealed in this text as in nowhere else in Scripture. And the elements are a direct revelation of Antichrist. And as we saw last week, there are other scriptures that echo or highlight nuances of our text, but yet are only highlights, are only pieces. Texts like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Texts like Revelation 11 and 13 and 19. Texts like Daniel 7 and 9, which are precursors to our text here in Daniel 11. But again, none gives as full a view as we see in our text. In our first point, uh, we looked at a religious cessation, and that was the end times of the worship of the Lord or of Yahweh. And we confirmed that the end times context was clear because back in verse 35, we saw those end times being looked forward to as a future consideration. And then at, uh, we saw that existence of the end times coming to fruition as we'll look at our, one of our verses tonight in verse 40. We also saw a new player in our text, the king who is identified in verse 36, and we showed why that individual is not one of the previous kings of the north or of the south, which in verses 35 and prior are reflecting historical events in the time following Alexander the Great's death, and primarily those 14 kings reigning in the region north of Israel, the Seleucids in the area of Syria, or those south in Egypt and below, the Ptolemies. And that now we have a transition that has occurred, and that no longer are we talking about those earthly kings, but now we are looking forward to the king who is the Antichrist. Verse 36, as we saw, was an overview of Antichrist's reign through the seven-year tribulation, the period known as Daniel's 70th week. And the doing as he pleased in verse 36 follows the rapture of the church from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 to 18. And that is a result of the removal of the Holy Spirit's restraining influence in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 6 to 8. That is why Antichrist is allowed to do as he pleases. And it is marked by Antichrist's covenant with Israel, that which we saw in the beginning of Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. So we're seeing this hierarchy of events in the 70th week, in the tribulation, which is spoken of in the book of Revelation, only we're seeing a much clearer emphasis on the timetable. That beginning with the treaty of Antichrist with Israel, and that that event 
is that which follows the first element of the end times, which is the rapture of the church. And we discussed how there could be some movement that it wouldn't necessarily require that that covenant with Israel occurred after the rapture. But it does appear from what we see in the text that that is the order of events. First the rapture, then Antichrist treaty with Israel, where he will present himself as her Messiah, will will appear fallaciously to guide and to guard and to protect Israel. And as we also discussed, that that one Antichrist, per the text, is clearly indicating one who is of Jewish descent. And you can go back and refresh yourselves on all those details. We also saw the, first, the further self-exaltation above every god and the mantra, monstrous speaking against the god of gods that vaults us to the middle of the tribulation. That is, we have the rapture of the church, we have the covenant with Israel, we have Antichrist falsely presenting himself as Messiah to the Jewish nation, and then all of a sudden we see him flip and he starts to speak monstrous things against the true God and to exalt himself. And that is what occurs where he breaks the covenant with Israel at the middle of the tribulation, at the three and a half year period, which marks the moving into what the Lord Jesus calls in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, the great tribulation. And we see that occurring in Revelation chapter 8 and forward. So from Revelation chapter 6, primarily Revelation chapter 6, we see the first half of the tribulation. We see a pause in Revelation 7 where we identify the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from every tribe, followed by the identification of those that will come to Christ after the rapture of the church. So although the Holy Spirit has been removed, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2, it does not mean that there will be no more Christians. There will be more people who come to Christ. Those are the ones who we then see martyred in the next part of Revelation. And when we get to Revelation chapter 8, we begin to move into that period called the Great Tribulation. This period marked here in our text by this exaltation of himself that we see in Daniel 11 and verses 36 and 37. So these, these things that he moves forward, that Antichrist is then, again, destroying that treaty, which we also saw in Daniel 9, 27, and is marked, again, by the beginning of Revelation 8. You'll also notice that Antichrist's exposure to his hatred of Israel and stopping the sacrificial system, thus his rejection of Israel is simultaneous with God the Father's calling out of true Israel. Recognize that. We hit the midpoint of the tribulation. The point at which Antichrist's facade about being Messiah is unveiled. And he is shown to be the one who is now blaspheming God. And at that very moment, at the midpoint of the tribulation, is also where we hit God identifying 
his chosen people Israel, 12,000 from all 12 tribes. And it's brilliant to recognize that chronology. And unless you kind of put the pieces together of these two elements, you can miss that. But I just find that fascinating. That there's been this ruse that Antichrist is perpetrating upon the whole world. And then at the moment he reveals himself, God reveals who those that are his chosen people that he'll carry forward to complete his plan revealed all the way back in Genesis 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. And it's just like, wow, look at all that happening. Just boom, boom. And again, I ought not be surprised. This is the amazement of God's perfect timetable, but it is fascinating to see this. And as we understand all these concurrent events, and then we see Antichrist will continue until God's wrath is finished and until he's done with Antichrist. And again, we see God's full control. And all of this in verse 36. So this is a big overview verse that transitions us out of the kings of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and into the end times. And then in verse 37, we further see described Antichrist's reign and also confirms for us that Antichrist must come from the Jewish lineage. In verse 37, he will show no regard for the God of his fathers. Remember we discussed carefully that that Hebrew word there, Elohim, is the same name used of the creator God, Yahweh. So the plural translation here of God's is somewhat unfortunate and we understand that that is better translated at the God of his fathers. And we went on to describe how the desire for women does not relate to any sexual reference but rather to what every faithful Jewish woman wanted to be which was the mother of Messiah. So he is rejecting God the Father. He is rejecting any connection with Messiah because he's made himself to be Messiah and then rejecting any and all gods other than that as we saw there again at the end of verse 37. And you can go back and refresh yourselves on all those details and more. And verse 38 then takes us to our second point that is after a religious cessation we come to that second point, which is a ruler contrived. A ruler contrived. You see all that in your outline there in your bulletins. Let's take a look at verse 38 of Daniel chapter 11. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. A realm contested. Now, as we recognize uh, this aspect, or excuse me, of a ruler contrived, what we've seen is Antichrist's rejection. We see who he will worship, and it is now a God of fortresses. Now, verse 38 begins, but instead. This literal Hebrew is translated, but in his place. 
So the but instead is showing uh, a contrasting situation, a contrasting conjunction, but, and then instead is really in his place in the Hebrew. So, but in his place. So we're now being told that instead of the true God, instead of the Messiah or any other God, he will worship this God of fortresses. And it's not so much in this particular case in this particular phrase, referencing a God as it's giving us description of Antichrist's worship of himself and his own tyrannical rule over his kingdom, as one commentator well notes. Another commentator identifies this term as the personification of war. So what he's telling us here is that Antichrist's entire effort is going to be focused in an element to control the world. And ultimately we know to destroy the Jewish people. And when we think of any of the prophetic texts that might come to our mind, when we think of Ezekiel, when we think of Zechariah, when we think of 2 Thessalonians, when we think of Revelation, there is this context of war Amidst all of them. And we'll highlight several facets of this as we move along. So another identification of this term again is that personification of war. And the verse states that it is a God whom his fathers did not know. Here is further amplification of the fact that Antichrist comes from a Jewish lineage. But. It also states that the Jewish leaders did not trust in this God. That is, they did not trust in military power and warfare. Now, they did use those elements. Israel did war. And when they did so in God's power and at God's leading, they were massively successful. But there's a few times where they went without God's favor And without God's leading. And it didn't go so well for them. Right right after the spies came back from the land. You'll remember. And as they came back. and, And two of the ten said no we should go in. And the other said no we won't go. And therein God punishes and says tells Moses that he's going to leave the nation. And Moses conveys that. And they're like uh oh. Okay, well, we'll go. We'll go now. In fact, we're going to go war against them right now. And Moses says, don't go. It's not going to go well for you. And it doesn't. And they get knocked out. Or after they enter the land. And they go in and they conquer Ai. And we see that Achan takes some of the gold that's under the ban and some of the silver. And because of that, they go to the next war without checking on on God to see if he was with them, and they get just spanked. And we see this repeatedly when they're going away from the Lord. But when they are recognizing that it is God that is sovereign and not some element of war or warfare, then they're successful. Well, it's that same concept here, only it's all about the war and the warfare. And this is why it is not what the Jewish lineage trusted in because they understood that only when God was with them were they able to move forward. 
even though, again, they did use these warfare tactics and even rely on them. But they relied, again, on the power of God. They knew that it was the strength of Yahweh where the victory resided, not in their military conquest or might. The rest of verse 38 states that Antichrist will honor this God of warfare by pouring all valuable resources to support this powerful war effort. We see this very thing in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 14. Revelation 13 and 14 reads as follows. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs here, Antichrist. And he deceives deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who has the wound of the sword and has come to life. And that is a great verse, but it's not the one I meant to read. We're going to bounce back to verse 4 of Revelation 13. And when I can read my own handwriting, it'll get much clearer. Revelation 13 and 4. They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So here we have the dragon who is Satan Satan giving his authority to the beast who is Antichrist, who then is a mongrel of war. And the world is acknowledging who can stand against this one who is this war machine. We see another facet of this regarding Antichrist in a text we read last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. In 2 Thess 2 and 9 we read, That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all the power and signs and false wonders. So here we have parallel verses really in Revelation 13.4 and 2 Thessalonians 2.9 further affirming this powerful war effort. Verse 39 carries forward this description and his action against the strong fortresses is the domination over other worldly powers. We see there that the, the Antichrist, the king, as we have identified this new individual, is the one who will dominate over the other world powers that exist at this time. And this is uh, an important consideration for us to understand as we look through all these details. He will honor that God, a God whom his fathers will not know, and he will honor him with gold and silver and costly treasures. The Help of a foreign God here is very unique. It's a very unique Hebrew phraseology. The word is similar to that in Psalm 81.9 that references idols. But here, help is literally rendered. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. So this is not simply now a God of fortresses. This is not an ambiguous reference to his warmongering. Rather, there is a God who is stepping in to help him. Well, who is that? 
That's right. This is Satan who is moving forward. Who is, he is bringing this honor, he is bringing this effort to, and who is empowering him. Exactly as we saw in those previous two references in Revelation 13.4 and 2 Thessalonians 2.9. It is Satan who is moving this forward. A reference to Satan himself. And although satanic worship is common today, it was completely unknown in that ancient time of Israel. And thus Daniel states in verse 38 that it was a God his fathers did not know. Well, they worship plenty of false gods. They just didn't understand that what they were truly worshiping was Satan and they did not acknowledge that they were worshiping Satan. Now, I don't know how it happened and we don't need to get too excited about uh, some of our internet connections, but somehow on my church email about three weeks ago, within two minutes of one another, I got a note from the temple of Satan and from the LDS church that they were wanting to give me more information about their organizations. And I thought, wow, that parallel is uncanny. Uh, But the timing is also very unique. But in our day and age, there's no issue with that. The temple of Satan is is an outward action. It is a very prominent movement that there are many people who will say that they worship Satan. Such a thing did not happen in the ancient world. They effectively did worship Satan with their false gods and idols, but they did not acknowledge him as such. And that's what we see in that verse. Satan personifies the God of fortresses for he is all about destruction. Think about the text in John chapter 10 and verse 10, where we hear the Lord tell us that the enemy's goal is to kill and to steal and to destroy. And that's all that he does. He is set on destruction and thus this is a ruler contrived in our second point so a religious cessation a ruler contrived and our third point a realm contested a realm contested look at verse 40 of Daniel 11 with me at the end time the king of the south will collide with him And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with a great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. Let's keep in mind our focus. Our text is being written by Daniel in the year 536 BC. We're now talking about end times events that are moving forward from the midpoint or very near the midpoint of the tribulation. So we have to recognize that what Daniel is speaking about here are these future components 
that will come to fruition at that point. So the question becomes, who are we talking about? Now, we note first the time signature, which we've mentioned before. At the end time, we are now, this prophecy has now moved from verse 35, where the end time was still coming, to verse 40, where we are now in the end time. We've confirmed that we are in Daniel's 70th week, per the text, and we've spoken about that before. So this again confirms that we're in the last days, the time referenced as the tribulation and throughout the scripture as the period immediately preceding the return of the Lord at his second coming. And that's why our whole focus, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is on Christ. Because all of this is telling us the specificity which with we can understand the last events of the end times before Christ's return. And that's why it was so fascinating to see the exact detail of the historical elements of the Seleucids and Ptolemies, which was given to us so that we would know that this too has the same accuracy and specificity brought forward in it. So this completely, this this whole section completely debunks liberal scholars who try to say that this is still about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Just the fact that we know that we are now in the end times and that Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a historic ruler that died uh, back in the uh, mid-2nd century B.C., Not to mention that there are no historical events of Antiochus that can in any way be construed to match what we've already seen in verses 36 to 39. And also the verses following. We also know from our previous two points that we are now in or very near the middle of the tribulation. In or very near the beginning of the great tribulation. Tribulation, the second half, the last 42 months or three and a half years, the time and times and half a time. So this is the the context of our time stamp that is on this text. Verse 40 brings forward, honestly, one of the more challenging interpretive issues in this section, if not in the book of Daniel. That with the king of the south, And the king of the north. The context of end times clearly conveys that these are not referencing the Ptolemies or the Seleucids. Those kings are long, long gone. Thousands of years gone. But yet we have the same references. So what is being conveyed by these references? The context of the end times clearly conveys, again, who they're not, those that we saw in verses 5 to 28. But we have in verse 40, or what we have in verse 40, are references to different kings that represent similar regions. That ought not surprise us. Why was Israel the focus of the time of Antiochus IV Epiphanes or the time following Alexander the Great's death. Do you remember? Pardon? 
The bridge, exactly, the land bridge. Israel was vital because all of the military power to come and to try to conquer the rival entities had to go through Israel. All of the northern continents of the world, of the ancient world, were connected to all of the southern continents of the ancient world through that little 40 mile wide, 110 mile long land bridge that we know as Israel, bounded on the on the western side by the Mediterranean and bounded on the eastern side by the great desert. And that was the only way to go. Well now, Israel is still the focus, not because of the land bridge, but because of the spiritual significance. We're now seeing Antichrist not only want to conquer the world, as did all of the former rulers of the Seleucids and Ptolemies, trying to do what Alexander the Great did, but now Antichrist, empowered by Satan, is desirous of crushing Israel. So this is what we come forward to, is this element of the individual desiring to destroy Israel. So the context of the end times clearly conveys that these are not references again to those, those kings. And some argue here that the king of the north is the same as the king. That is Antichrist identified in verse 36. And here is the discussion and the, the difficult issue in interpretively in understanding this text. How many kings are referenced in verse 40? Is it two or is it three? Those that believe that it is three, which I think is strongly uh, supported, show that there is a king of the south, a king of the north, and the king who is Antichrist. And I'll show you why I believe that, and I think that when we get done, you'll agree. Or you better. No, there are a lot of really strong commentators. One of my favorite commentators would not agree with this, but I believe that when we look at the evidence grammatically, there is no question. Those that would say that it's a two-king theory see a king of the south, and then they see the king of the north and the king who is Antichrist as one individual. I'll tell you why that does not hold water. So, the king who is Antichrist here has already been identified in verse 36. Now, I don't believe that this is accurate, that there is just two kings, primarily because of the grammar. That's where I'm always going to go, and that's where I want you always to go, is back to the grammar of the text. This is the foundation. When we go through our distinctives class that's ongoing, I spend half of the first class talking about biblical interpretation and now we have to come back to the text and that everything we do in every class that we teach in this pulpit and in every other venue from the youngest children to the oldest group, it is all focused on God's word and interpreting that word. So when we come to difficult interpretive issues in the Bible, and we must acknowledge that there certainly are some, such as our text, then we first and foremost focus on the grammar. 
This is the foundation of the grammatical historical method of interpretation. The grammar of the original text in the original audience and the historical setting are that which convey the meaning of the text given to the original audience. Now the clearest indication of the grammar shows nearly identical sentence construction with each king doing battle against another king who I believe to be this third king, the king, Antichrist, identified in verse 36. Look carefully again at verse 40 with me. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. The next phrase. And the king of the north will storm against him. Now, if I were to bring up the Hebrew text for you, and you would just love that, I know. And I would love it. But I could point out to you how both of those clauses have exactly parallel structure. And they indicate a conjunction, a verb, and then an action against him, And then the king of the south is identified. Or they have a conjunction, a verb, against him, same pronoun, connection, and then the action of the king of the north. The parallelism of those two clauses alone leads me to believe that the action that is spoken of in verse 40, first that, that will collide with him, and next will storm against him, are both against the same individual. Let's just talk about the pronouns for a moment. The first clause there, where it says, the king of the south will collide with him. With him, when we have an ambiguous pronoun reference from our hermeneutical rules, what we do is what? We back up to the nearest antecedent. This is the rule of nearest antecedents. We go back to the last direct noun reference in the previous verses. That reference is the king. It is Antichrist from the previous section. So then we go to the second clause. And we see there that the king of the north will storm against him. Now here's where the conflict comes in. That pronoun reference could refer to the king of the, no- the, the, king of the south. Or... As I have presented, it is because of the parallel structure, it also is referring to Antichrist. Now that does require us to do a jump in our nearest antecedent. But the structure of the grammar indicates that that is appropriate. Now, we have to acknowledge that the pronoun references are difficult here. The second reason that I don't believe the king of the north is the same as Antichrist is because it's contrary to the normal usage. If these were the same individual, that is the king of the north and the king as the same, there's no reason we'd have had such a dramatic grammar change in verse 36. He wouldn't have been identified as the king as this standout element. It would have just been the king of the north. But it's not. So the usage is very unusual if these were the same individual. 
And there's no reason that he would be referenced again as king, not referenced as king of the north in verse 36. In fact, it's contrary to logic that he'd be referred to differently in these two locations if the same individual. Furthermore, in every circumstances of verses 5 to 35, there is a clear designation of one of the kings, either the king of the north or the king of the south, as attacking the other one. We were able to go through those verses and pinpoint which king was going which direction and even who was specifically being referenced. Notice here. There's no indication of one king aggressing against the other. Both are bringing forth aggressive actions. And I believe that's because they're both coming against the king who is Antichrist. You might be saying, wait a minute. We're in the tribulation. This is the end times. The whole world is against Christ. How come there's this battle? Hang on to that question. So, when we recognize this, there's no such indication that suggests a third individual that is not connected with a geographical region. So what these two kings, king of the north and king of the south, are referencing are indeed geographical circumstances. The king of the south is referencing the region of Egypt and Africa. The king of the north is referencing the kings that are north in, in Syria and into the, the other regions that are north of Syria, perhaps into even Russia. So the reference to the king of the south is showing again a reference to those southern regions of Egypt and North Africa. And this is parallel to what we saw earlier in the earlier verses of the chapter. It's further confirmed for us in our context. We want to stay in our close context by verse 43. Bounce down there. We read it. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and all, over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. So we have this regional connection immediately supported in our context. And we'll get to what that combination is all about when we get to verse 43. The reference to the king of the north is a reference again to the king of the region north of Israel. This including Syria, uh, parts of Asia, Asia Minor, perhaps Georgia, and parts of Russia. The king of the north is also not Antichrist because we've identified Antichrist as of Jewish descent. And as having made a treaty with Israel, it's highly unlikely such an individual would come out of this region to the north, which has constantly been at war with Israel. But what I find most compelling comes from Daniel chapter 7. Turn there with me. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. Remember, Daniel 7 is an overview of the entire prophetic section of Daniel. That is, it is an overview of chapters 8 to 12. So when we go back to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1, we see Daniel's vision, we see the timing of the vision. Verse 2, he's looking at the vision, he sees the four winds of heaven. Verse 3, four great beasts are coming up out of the sea different from one another. We see the description of the beasts, which we know to be those 
coming kingdoms that will be against Israel, the the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Media Persia, the kingdom of Greece, and then the kingdom of Rome. So verse 7, we pick it up. I kept, actually verse 6, after this I kept looking and behold another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and a dominion was given to this. This was the kingdom of Greece. It moved with the speed of a leopard with wings, conquered the entire world, Alexander the Great. The four heads are the four kings that come forward after Alexander's death. We've already spoken about those in Revelation chapter 11. And now verse 7, after this I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. And here we have the Roman Empire. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Now we remember all the way back from Daniel chapter 2. That there were four different materials that comprised five kingdoms. The fifth kingdom made of iron and clay mixed together was that of the end times kingdom like the Roman Empire but different. Notice how he just transitioned to that fifth kingdom at the end of verse 7. Different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. Verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns behold another horn a little one came up among them we described in that message that this is antichrist it came up among them and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it and behold this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts what does that have to do with our text keep in mind the ten horns keep in mind the little horn Again, the one which was Antichrist. And now focus on the three horns that are pulled out before the the roots before it. That is before Antichrist. Back to Daniel chapter 11. We've identified two of these kings. The king of the north and the king of the south. Now look at verse 44 of Daniel chapter 11. But rumors from the east... And from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate the many. In verse 43, he's just smoked the Egyptians and the Libyans and the Ethiopians, the king of the south. Now in verse 44, the second king, the king of the north, is brought under his gaze and attack. And the king of the east, three horns of the ten kings that exist are torn out by this little one. And this is exactly what I believe we're seeing referenced in our text. The three kings of Daniel 7, 8 are those of the north, south, and east. Now before we leave verse 40, notice the methodology of the warfare. Chariots, horsemen, and ships. Some commentators have argued that these terms were simply those familiar with Daniel. And that these will be more modern equipment like tanks and missiles. Now this could be the case. But keep in mind the setting. 
When we think about the Bible and interpreting the Bible, we need to have that analogy of the faith perspective. That is what does all of Scripture say? We're talking about the end times event. We're talking about the middle of the tribulation. We're talking about what has already happened through the first six seals of Revelation chapter 6. This is most certainly a massive element at what we're talking about. Think about what's happened as God has unleashed a massive warfare against the wickedness of the world in the tribulation. God has unleashed, again, massive warfare with the first seal and the first horse. The second horse that would remove peace Perhaps part of what we're seeing in Daniel 11:40 and forward is this warfare and the removal of peace. We also see a worldwide famine with the third seal. And in the fourth seal, a quarter of the earth's population killed. Numerous Christian converts are martyred. Great terror with a massive earthquake. In the fifth seal. And in the sixth seal, the sun blackened, the moon turned blood red, stars falling from the sky, the sky ripped apart. These kind of catastrophes could completely disable modern armaments and war machines and make them unusable and force a return to pre-mechanistic warfare. Is that what's happening? I don't know. But I don't think we have to jump to the fact to say, oh, well, just because we know more today, Daniel didn't understand. I think God understands pretty well. And I think he could have indicated to us very clearly without losing context or his reader's understanding about modern weaponry far beyond what Daniel knew. But he does not do that. And I think there's a likelihood that it will be exactly like he says. Because let's remember the first rule of biblical interpretation. As Milton Terry stated in the late 1800s, if the literal meaning makes sense, seek no other sense. Let's not jump to to allegorizing and spiritualizing All of these interpretations, when what is stated may be exactly what's going on. It may not, and I don't think I'll lose my seat in heaven, and I'm not going to die on that hill, but I want to urge great caution for you. And then we see at the end of verse 40, Antichrist will conquer many countries. Now, we'll come back in two weeks and continue a realm-contested And with this, more of the beginning of the end and all of these details in preparation for Christ's return. We'll see more support for this perspective and you'll see more detail on all of those elements. But what we're going to see in all of this is God's amazing revelation of the beginning of of the end, the incredible accuracy that exists in this, and that each and every piece is meant for us to understand in a way that it's described nowhere else in scripture what God's prophetic timetable is, how he's going to bring it to fruition, 
that we can understand all of the other pieces and we're going to start to connect those pieces of Ezekiel and of Zechariah and other pieces of Revelation as we move ahead into these next sections of our text. So let's pray as we close our time tonight. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are so glorious. Thank you, Father, that, that you have taken such time and intricacy to reveal to us your word so that we could study it, so that we could know, so that we could be more in love with you as we recognize, Father, your kindness in showing us these details. Father, it's incredible to understand all you've brought forth. And Father, we acknowledge that some of it is not easy to understand. But Lord, you have written to us in a clear and precise and understandable way. And Father, we desire to have that understanding so that we could carry forth in greater growth. So that we could carry forth in greater power of your spirit that dwells in us. So that we could be more faithful at proclaiming your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom all of this points to. And all for your glory. And all for your honor. Help us, Lord, to be more faithful as we understand the beauty and perfection with which you have revealed all of the events of this earth to us. And we give you thanks and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.